Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We are continuing our walk through the book of Numbers, uh, a book about Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert after the Exodus, but before they entered into the Promised Land. And in the book of Evidence, we learn about all that God did to get Israel out of Egypt. And in the book of Numbers, we learn about all that God will do to get Egypt out of Israel. Because now that Israel was out, we learn how much of Egyptian beliefs and Egyptian ways and Egyptian idols remained in the hearts of the Israelites. And God's goal was not only to deliver Israel out of bondage in Egypt, but it was to bring Israel into a covenantal relationship with Himself. He redeemed them so that they could be His people and He could be their God. And it was about establishing that real, lasting relationship, a covenantal one that's like marriage. This relationship was to be exclusive and permanent. The problem was many Israelites weren't sure they wanted that type of relationship. And shockingly, many of the Israelites uh, wanted to return to Egyptian gods, committing spiritual adultery Uh, with them, even as they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. Others just reminisced about their time in Egypt of how good it was, rather than uh, trust God and enter into His, uh, a new home with Him in the Promised Land. So, it seems that many people in Israel, like many people today, they wanted a relationship without responsibility, right? They wanted uh, intimacy without strings attached, communion without commitment. But any true healthy relationship with God or with anyone else demands that we abide by certain conditions. And God sets the conditions for His covenant. God sets the condition in, conditions by way of the moral law at Mount Sinai, and then God further explains the conditions of the covenant throughout Numbers. And here in Numbers 28 and 29, by way of these offerings that we're going to read about, Uh, we see God setting sort of the the family rules. These are the spiritual practices that illustrate how to to get right with God and the family rules that illustrate how to maintain a healthy relationship with God. And just as in any healthy family system, uh, there are boundaries that need to be respected and maintained and traditions that need to be kept daily, weekly, and seasonally. And so it is with God's families that we must maintain boundaries and traditions according to these covenantal obligations. So as we walk through the text, and I am going to read the whole text. If you don't know me by now, I have, I have sort of a uh, reputation for doing that. So we're going to read through the whole text. Um, and first, we'll see how all of what is written there uh, plays out in, in the exclusive covenantal relationship that God has with Israel, which is our model. And then second, we'll look at how this model set with God's Old Testament people uh, applies today and how its principles can be lived out today. So let me pray for us, and then we will, we will jump in. 
God, we thank You so much that You are a God of relationship, and not just a relationship of convenience, but one of commitment. And Lord, that You want us to abide with You, and that You want to abide with us. Um, Father, we pray that as we read through this, the beauty of the type of relationship You describe would not just stick out to us in new ways, but that it would, it would transform us. It would create in us a, a hunger to enter more deeply into that covenantal relationship with You, to abide by our covenantal promises, to seek to, um, to invest in our relationship with You and to celebrate it. And God, as we do that, we pray that You would do Your good work of transforming us and making us more and more into the beautiful bride You have promised us to be. We pray this for Your glory and for our greater enjoyment of You. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, we're going to look at how Israel as a model lived out their covenantal relationship with God, okay? So first, we're going to look at the regular offerings, and then we're going to look at the special annual feast. So first, the regular offerings. It starts with daily offerings in chapter 28, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'Command the people of Israel and say to them, "'My offering, my food for my offerings, "'my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me "'as at its appointed time. "'And you shall say to them, "'This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day,' as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb, And in the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and like its drink offering you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then Sabbath offerings. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is uh, the offering, uh, this is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offerings and its drink offering. Monthly offerings. At the beginning of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hin of wine for a bull, a third of a hin of ram, and a quarter of a hin for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the month of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. If you've ever uh, gone uh, to prepare for a wedding and, you know, you have the, the the details that the wedding coordinators plan out kind of is like this, right? 
every detail is considered because this is important. Just like our wedding banquet is an important day, you want everything to go just right. We see that uh, these offerings are given with, with lavish details. Um, the offerings, if you'll notice, are, are ordered by time periods from shorter to longer, from daily to weekly to monthly to seasonally. Okay, they, they were daily expectations for living with God, uh, living in his family. God's people were to make an offering each day. Well, actually twice daily, once in the morning and once in the evening. And you read in verse 2, they are food offerings, right? My offering, my food for my offerings. Israel may be the one cooking the meal, but God is the one providing the game. These were daily meals with the Lord. And as with any family committed to each other's health, it is a balanced meal with meat, a lamb in verse 4, drink and grain, flour with oil. And this is a table fellowship replete with pleasant aromas that are associated with family meals. Such a family, uh, such a table fellowship was to be the family priority at breakfast and at dinner. And this is just the way it was if you wanted to be part of God's family and to live with his people. Right? This was the way God's people were to prepare for the day ahead and to rejoin for fellowship at the close of the day. And they're just the daily expectations, the ground rules for Israel living as God's family. There were also weekly expectations, right? Every Sabbath, double portions were enjoyed, right? Two male lambs without blemish, two-tenths of an ephah of flour mixed with oil, and a drink offering. And notice, this is not a mere replacement of the daily meal offering, but it is in addition to it. Okay, and the same principle applies for the monthly offerings. Only these fellowship meals were even more special and extravagant. Instead of a lamb, the monthly burnt offering included two bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs without blemish. And every month, God's family was to just imbibe and feast richly, right? Three-tenths uh, of an ephah of flour, a hin of wine for the bull, one-third of a hin for the ram, one-fourth a hin for each lamb. And in addition to these burnt offerings, there was also a sin offering of one goat. So what does all this mean? It seems that God is really committed to family time, right? He provides any reason to meet with his people for intimate communion and joyous fellowship it's morning, he says, so let's eat and feast. It's the evening, let's do business and discuss our day and make sure everyone's on the same page and we are living reconciled. It's, it's the new Sabbath, so let's do this and just rest and enjoy each other all day. And, you know, it's, it's a full moon, so let's do it again. Let's just, let's just enjoy and be together. Israel was not merely to order life around um, these regular offerings, though, of weekly and daily and monthly. They were also to hold several annual feasts, okay? And each of these annual feasts um, held deep and abiding meaning. God's commitment to this intimate communion and joyful fellowship will become even more clear as we look at this next section of the annual feast. So we're going to pick up again in verse 16 of chapter 28, the Passover offerings. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, and on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten, and on the first day there shall be a holy convocation. 
You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old. See that they are without blemish. Also, their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah shall you offer for a bull, and two-tenths for a ram. A tenth shall you offer for each of the seven lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offerings of the morning, which is the regular burnt offering. And in the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Offerings for the Feast of Weeks. On the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord, at your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bowl, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, uh, with one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them and their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. Offerings for the Feast of Trumpets. On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall, do, you shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Also their grain offerings of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offerings of the new moon and its grain offering, and the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offering according to the rule for them, for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. Offerings for the Day of Atonement. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old. See that they are without blemish. And their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for uh, one ram, and a tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offerings. Offerings for the Feast of Booths. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days, and you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old, they shall be without blemish, and their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings, its grain offering, and its drink offering. And on the second day, 
12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs, and a year, old, uh, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offerings. And then on the third day, 11 bulls, two rams, 14 males, male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. On the fourth day, ten bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bull, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for sin offering besides the regular burnt offerings, its grain offerings, and its drink offerings. Verse 26, on the fifth day, nine bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish, uh, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bull and the rams and the lambs and the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offerings. On the sixth day, eight bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, a year old without blemish, with their grain offerings and drink offerings for the bull for the ram and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offerings. On the seventh day, seven bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without blemish with the grain offerings and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for sin offering besides the regular burnt offerings, its grain offerings, uh, its grain offering and its drink offerings. On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and the grain offering and the drink offering for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offerings and its grain offerings and its drink offerings. These you shall offer to the Lord at the appointed feasts, in addition to your vow offerings and your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. So Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. So, as an aside before we jump in here, we see that God expected his people to set aside significant time and resources to worship, uh, to fellowship, and to celebrate Him. Our nation celebrates seven national holidays, which are paid days off. That fars fall short of what Israel uh, was, was to take off. Uh, you add up all these days, it's, it's, it's well over a month. Uh, ironically, it's you know, secular idolaters that get closer to the level of celebration demanded by God when they celebrate Pride Month, right? That may be because Pride Month is actually a religious movement, right? Because you've got to worship something. If you reject the one true God, something is going to take its place. But back to the text. Let me comment briefly on each of these seasonal feasts. The Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, okay? So each feast, it's important to note, transcended the agricultural and or social reasons to celebrate, okay? 
Each was connected to a historical and redemptive meaning in which God was the center of the feast. So the Passover, for instance, this is the first yearly celebration. It's celebrated alongside its partner feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt so they could be a people for God. And by celebrating the Passover, Israel was remembering the last plague when the angel of death passed over the households of all who trusted in God's prophet and marked their homes with the blood of an innocent lamb. But those not marked by the blood of the lamb who rejected Moses' warning, the angel of death killed the firstborn son in every house, even Pharaoh's. So the Passover meal reminded Israel of God's grace in sparing them and freeing them from Egypt. And as they ate the unleavened bread, which went along with it, bread without yeast, they were reminded of God's power to quickly deliver them out of the most devastating circumstances and to stand ready since cooking bread with yeast symbolized, you know, change, decay, and delay. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel was reminded to live obedient lives marked by an eagerness of action and a purity of heart. So that's the Passover. Then we have the Feast of Weeks. What was that? This took place at the end of the barley harvest, which was seven weeks after the Passover. Here, Israel celebrated God's providence as they offered the first fruits of what the land produced. And they did so trusting God to bring in the rest of the growing season. And they declared thus in that that everything was a gift from God. Everything belonged to God. And then at the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets actually began a threefold set of feasts, okay, Uh, that started on the first day of the seventh month, a time to, you know, proclaim with much pomp and circumstance the royalty of Yahweh, his, His kingly rule, that He is king. And this was followed by a day of atonement. Most of the time is spent here on this feast, it's uh, seven days, and this is where you see a ton of feasts from 14 all the way down to, uh, to seven, where they're offering uh, bulls, uh, one bull less each day. But then on the Day of Atonement, which is the National Day of Remembrance, a, a day of purification and restoration, when the high priest would enter the temple uh, of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the, the blood of atonement on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, which removed the accumulated sins of the last year from God's people, right? And then this was followed by the the Feast of Booths, right? Or tabernacles or tents, different words. Um, When What would happen at this feast? At the Feast of Booths, people from every family literally moved out of their home for a week. They moved out of their homes into temporary shelters that lined the streets. And they did this to reenact the, the, the wanderings in the wilderness. And this served as a reminder of God's provision for them in hard and difficult times, in the wilderness, right? In addition to reminding them of their unity as a people, right? As they got outside their their homes and they communed in the streets and they were forced to interact with their neighbors, it reminded them that they are one body, one nation, one people, And it also reminded them that as they lived in the promised land, that they were not to settle down as if this was their final home, because their home was wherever God was and would only be established 
with the fullness of God's reign on earth as it is in heaven, okay? So there you have the feasts of booze and all these other feasts. All these offerings, including the burnt offerings, symbolically represented how to live in fellowship with God and with God's people. Now, this leads to our our second point, right? How does this model apply to God's new covenant people? And and to understand that, we're going to have to dig in a little bit more with what it meant and then how, how it applies. So Old Testament fellowship entailed two distinct but inseparable aspects. One was, was fellowship as faithful communion, and the second was fellowship as joyful communion, okay? And in Israel's sacrificial system, we have a model of covenantal relationship. First, in its picture of faithful communion, okay? What do I mean by that? As with Israel, faithful communion required trusting God's word and obeying it, obeying God's ways. The offerings themselves modeled that process, right? They were a how-to manual, how to trust God and interact with Him. And if you look back at the text, the offerings and the feast entailed at least two characteristics, if not more, but I want to make mention of two. They entailed making costly sacrifice and, two, receiving abundant grace, okay? Let's look at making costly sacrifice. Ian Duguid said it this way. He said, like marriage, the cost of communion with the true God is certainly not cheap. In these chapters, Numbers 28 and 29, the Lord makes great demands on His people, and these are required, not optional, The offerings listed here are cumulative, so weekly sacrifices on the Sabbath were to be offered in addition to the daily offerings, while the festival offerings were in addition to both. And if you do the math, the total comes out to an annual obligation of 1,093 lambs, 37 rams, 113 bulls, 30 goats, along with their associated grain offerings and drink offerings. In other words... Communion with the true and living God was a costly affair. Moreover, most of the offerings are termed whole burnt offerings. A whole burnt offering is a type of offering that symbolizes total commitment and complete consecration to God. In other words, communion with God will cost us everything everything we are and everything we have. So what does this teach us about how we relate to God and understand His grace? See, grace is not just about being delivered from a bad situation, but it's about being delivered into a new relationship. Of course, we're saved by grace, and we add nothing to our deliverance. As with the Passover, we are saved out of tyranny by the total sacrifice of a substitute. So also, we are delivered from the tyranny of sin and death because of the complete and total sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. However, just as Israel was saved from Pharaoh, a wicked king, to serve Yahweh, a loving and gracious king, we are saved from the dominion of sin to serve a new master, Jesus Christ. And we are always going to serve someone. We always have a master. The question is, which master do you serve? 
the one that abuses you and uses you, or the one that delivers you, loves you, and sacrifices all things for you. So this is what's pictured in these sacrifices, right? That we are to sacrifice everything to this new king who has delivered us and called us and made us his own. He is worthy of our best. He is worthy of our all. He has the right to ask us of everything, not as a way to earn our deliverance. We've already been delivered, but because he is king and he is worthy of it. So this leads us to the second characteristic of the Old Testament sacrifices. Not only were they characterized by costly sacrifice, but also by abundant grace. Um, One commentator said it this way, right? Each of these sacrifices, we receive abundant grace. He said, no matter how costly the burnt offering was for the person offering it, it was far more costly for the animal being offered. The cost of the animal was death, a death that was necessary to make the offerer acceptable to God. See, the whole system demonstrated how God's forgiveness works through atonement. In real life, sin never just goes away. Transgression must be paid for, either by the sinner or by someone else. For example, when someone backs over your white picket fence, the problem created doesn't just go away by saying the words, oh, I'm sorry I backed over your white picket fence. For things to be restored and made right, someone must pay. Now, if the guilty party pays for the damage, we call it justice. If the innocent party pays for the damage, we call it mercy. Either way, the transgression must be paid for if anything is going to be restored and made right. It's exactly the same way with sin against God. Someone has to pay the cost of sin, which is death. Either the guilty party pays for their own death, which would be justice, or God, the offended party, pays the bill on your behalf, which is mercy. And in the Bible, God offers mercy by paying the bill. In the Old Testament, he offers symbols to teach the people how the bill was paid through an innocent, perfect substitute of a lamb or a bull. Did you catch that as I read it? It had to be innocent, without blemish. But these were only a shadow pointing to the one who actually paid the bill. And Jesus, when he shows up in the New Testament, is declared the perfect lamb of God, the innocent and perfect one who died in our place. See, remember, Jesus is not just a prophet or a man, but He is God in the flesh. And so, in Jesus, God is paying the bill to meet the demands of justice, but He is doing it as the innocent party that is aggrieved, and therefore, He is offering mercy. So, in Jesus, we receive abundant grace. He pays for our sin in full so that we can be forgiven and restored to God. This was the message that, you know, some of the people we were evangelizing to this past week, it was really hard for them to to wrap their mind around the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. But as they wrestled with it, it was such a delight to see the freedom and the hope and the new life that was born inside people's hearts and minds as they trusted Christ as their atoning sacrifice that covered all their shame and guilt, that it was sufficient, it was enough, that he declared it is finished. 
So the Old Testament sacrifices give us this new hope by teaching us how to relate to God through faithful communion that requires making costly sacrifice and receiving abundant grace. But lastly, as with Israel, right, it's not just about faithful communion, but joyful communion with God, right? Joyful communion that was the natural and necessary result of faithful communion. Joyful communion entails delighting in, resting from, and sharing. Did you notice the Lord was saying it must be a holy rest, a holy convocation of of coming together to remember God's Word and His promises. The sacrifices and festivals of Israel were always intended to lead you to communion with God and with each other. And the goal was to give us an appetizer of what our, song, of what our souls long for, true acceptance, heartfelt welcome, happy fellowship that renews and refreshes the heart, a quieting pleasure that puts the body and soul at rest. The priority given to such joy in this passage is a bit surprising. I mean, when you add up all the days, weeks and weeks of festivals, committed time to retell the old, old story, to celebrate what God has done, how He provides, how He wants to abide with you, and how He wants you to abide with Him and with each other in rest and fellowship and celebration. I mean, it is amazing. It puts us to shame. We don't take enough time off to celebrate if we would take this seriously. All of this was designed by God to increase our joy in Him and in His good gifts, to revel in them together as a holy community, as His family, learning how to share His good gifts in love with one another. And such days of rest and festivity were to be just a a foretaste of heaven, just a foretaste of heaven, appetizers that increased our hunger for the Lord and His kingdom. So the sacrifice and festivals outlined in Numbers 28 and 29 point to the priority God gives to fellowship as faithful and joyful communion with Him and with His people. All right, so how does this all apply? Some closing applications. First, how do you need to better align your life with God's priorities in God's rhythms. See, God still calls His people to daily fellowship with Him. Time with Him is to frame our day. We are to start our day framing ourselves with the promises of Scripture. And we are to end our day with fellowship with Him, confessing our sins, reviewing our day, thanking Him for the blessings. Moreover, God still calls His people to set aside a full day once a week to spend time with Him and with His people, setting aside work, lingering all day at His table with His people, feasting and enjoying fellowship with Him and with one one another. What needs to change in your life to be able to do this? Are you setting aside time daily, in the morning, in the evening, framing your day to feed your heart and soul in fellowship with God. What about the lunar feast and, and seasonal feast? In Colossians two sixteen and 17, Paul tells us that the religious calendar of the Old Testament does not bind us as law because these things were merely a shadow of the reality 
which was uh, fulfilled in Christ, right? So we don't need to keep the Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the firstborn of creation whose blood pays the ransom for our sin and shields us from the angel of death, right? And reconciles us to God. He's the innocent one whom we feast upon at each Lord's Supper until we are fully and finally delivered of our sin and death and brought into His kingdom, right? So He is our Passover lamb. And Jesus, likewise, is our Sabbath rest, right? Hebrews 4 teaches us that we are to enter the rest. We don't have to wait weekly. We can enter it daily as we rest upon the finished work of God in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament sacrifices and festivals, they they no longer bind us as a law. They're only a shadow because the one to whom they point has already come, and He is here. However, they do inform us. They inform us by way of principle. And if we are wise, we will look to their pattern of consistency and devotion to inform our practices. So what needs to change? What needs to change in your life so that you can experience intimate and vital communion with God? Is yours a failure of faithfulness? Is it a failure of consistency? Are you reading His Word? Do you frame your day with His words? Or do you start it out with news and podcasts and talking heads? How might your attitude and your perspective change if you entered into daily fellowship with the Lord and gave that priority? Priority to hear what God says to you each day as you open your day. Maybe yours isn't a failure of faithfulness, but yours is a failure of joyfulness, a failure to choose joy or place joy in God above all things. Do you enjoy your meal or do you enjoy your meal as a sign of God's daily provision for you, that He takes care of you each and every day? He cares about the small things in your life. Do do you recognize God's sovereignty in your life that maybe when you're late for traffic that you can realize, okay, He has my good in mind even in this. How can I trust Him in the midst of my frustrations and angst? Is God's presence something that you can enjoy, not just when things are going as planned, but especially when they're they're not going well, you can turn to Him for, for mercy and strength and grace You can turn and and recognize uh, His promises in Scripture and claim them as your own and recognize God is using these things to form your character and make you more like Christ. And you can find joy in it then rather than just mere frustration. So is yours a failure of joyfulness, choosing joy and to trust in His promise? What will you change today? Will you set aside time to be with God? What might you need to change in your weekly schedule? When was the last time you had just a personal retreat where you went away and just enjoyed the Lord for a significant period of time? Do you make priority to fellowship with other Christians, or are you just too busy? See, these are things that as we we follow them as wise patterns and principles, it will be a blessing to you. One of the greatest blessings of the missions trip was not just going out and sharing the gospel with dozens of people each day, but it was, it was congregating with, with people afterwards at dinner and taking our interpreters out to dinner and just spending hours of unrushed time getting to know them and their stories. What a joy that is 
to spend fellowship with one another, to learn what is God doing in your life? What are your questions? What are your concerns? What are your joys and your sorrows? It was like two meals in one. I had great Colombian food, and I had great fellowship. So, the Lord gives us the Old Testament pattern. This is what He wants for His family, regular family time, celebrating Him, feasting upon Him and His Word. And as we align our lives with that, we will be blessed. Brothers and sisters, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank You for uh, what it teaches us. Uh, There's lots of things we couldn't go into depth, but this gives us just a, a beautiful picture of, of who you are, that you are our heavenly Father, and you call us into joyful, faithful fellowship with you. And Lord, like those images in the Hallmark commercial that, that just ooze with, with comfort and acceptance and fellowship and unity and love, Lord, that can't hold a candle to the real intimacy and joy we can find in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn toward you daily. Help us to gather weekly with friends and family to to make space to remember you and celebrate you and talk about all that you've done and what you're doing in our lives. And help us to set aside time even more than that on a monthly basis and a seasonal basis to really rest and celebrate and imbibe. Lord, these things are important to you. Forgive us for, for... thinking we're too busy, that we don't have time for this. Lord, it's amazing how much time you set aside for celebration and joy. So, help us to align our lives with your heart and your desires in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.